So let's begin the way we always do. Uh, I'd like to talk to our young ones. I'm going to tell you all what uh, the passage is going to be about. Our older ones here, you know, this is either just like really setting the stage, immediately jumping in, or it's something we're going to come back to. We're going to circle back to this stuff right here. Uh, so, uh, young ones, I got a friend uh, who just a few weeks ago, he was in Colorado, which it's cold outside right now. It's much colder in, in Colorado. And he goes out in the morning, and uh, this is something he does. He, he sees this uh, stream, and he's like, I want to get in. Uh, I know it's really cold, but this is, like, going to wake me up. So he, he gets in this stream that's freezing cold. And, and at the beginning, I mean, he is in pain, and he's just sitting there. He's like, oh, 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 you know, and he's just freaking out for, like, 30 seconds. And then, you know, after, after like, a minute, he, he, he feels like his body's getting used to it. And he's like, okay, okay, I can take it. I can take it. I can take it. You know, and his body just kind of just takes it, kind of goes numb. Well, uh, a month later, he still can't feel the tips of his fingers. <laughs> this is really bad. He's just getting fe- feeling back in his fingers because uh, he's scared he got this thing called frostbite. Do you all know what frostbite is? Frostbite is when you're in something really, 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 really cold, and, and your hands, your limbs start to literally freeze to death. Uh, okay, so this is, this is what frostbite, this is how scary frost, I mean, it sounds scary, and it is, like, listen to how this happens. When you get into, like, really, 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 really cold weather, like, really cold weather, like, you can feel it, right, in your fingers, in your hands, like, it feels like, feels like, like, pinpricks, feels really stingy, prickly, like, it's, it's painful, but then if you stay out long enough, you start to, you start, your hands start to, like, you stop feeling stuff, you know, and, and it's really tempting to think at that point, Ah, I'm okay. Okay, this is okay. But that's actually when you stop feeling the pain, that's actually when things are getting really, really bad. Because what's happening is your nerve endings are freezing to death. Like your body is starting to die. Parts of your body are starting to die. And those messages aren't being sent to your brain anymore. Hey, I'm cold. Hey, I'm cold. We're cold. We're cold. Get warm. Get warm. Like you don't hear it. And if you stay out in that long enough, you really will get frostbite. You stay out too long, you'll, you'll freeze to death. You'll die. So here's what, here's what that means. Like your, body, your body can deceive you. Your body can deceive you of like telling you, oh, nothing's wrong when something actually is terribly wrong. Did you know your heart can do the same thing? Your heart, like your mind, like that, that thing inside you can deceive you. Uh, to where you're doing something wrong and you don't think you're doing anything wrong. This is what we're going to see in the Old Testament with uh, Israel's first king, this guy named Saul, who started off as a good king, but he gets worse and worse, more disobedient, more disobedient to the point where he doesn't even realize he's denying that he's doing anything wrong and he's done terrible, terrible wrong. Uh, So let me ask you this. (sighs) Young ones. What do you think, and there are, like, we're just going to, like, first thing that comes to mind, trust me, it won't be bad, it'll just be a huge help, let's just say this out loud, what do you think God wants more from you? Do you think God wants more for you to be obedient to him, or for you to cry out to mercy for him? What do you think God wants more from you, obedience or mercy? First thing that comes to your mind, how about this, those who think obedience, raise your hand. Those who think mercy, raise their hands. Good. Now that, but you hear that and you're like, wait, that can't be right. Like, surely God wants me to be obedient. 
not to like just cry out for mercy, because then I could just go out and do anything I wanted to and, you know, be bad and then just cry out for mercy. No, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. But, but what we're going to see today is uh, there is something inside of us that says, oh, I've got to be good. Like, that's what God really wants from me is to be good. And if I'm not good, God won't love me. And if I'm, if I'm more good than I'm bad, then, then, then God will love me and he'll forgive me and I'll get to heaven. That is spiritual frostbite. That is you being deceived. It's believing a lie. Because here's the truth. Can you obey God perfectly? No. So what does your sin deserve? Really bad. Your sin deserves condemnation, justice, hell. Like that's what you deserve from God. So what should we cry out to God for? Because we're not perfect. We don't obey him perfectly. We should cry out mercy. God, have mercy on me. That's why Jesus came. He came to take the justice you deserve. He came and lived the life you should. He came and died the death that you deserve so that you don't have to die it. That's mercy. And that's why we call out to God for mercy, mercy. Young ones, I promise you, this is stuff your parents struggle with. This is stuff every adult here struggles with is this, this spiritual frostbite, self-deception where our hearts fool us into thinking, what God really wants from me is obedience. And, and, and if I'm obedient enough, God will accept me and love me. That is a lie. You can't do it. And what he expects of you, what he desires from you is to cry out for mercy. This is what Saul should have done. This is what we want to learn. This is what we want to do. And, and here's the last thing. It's really hard to believe that God is that gracious. Like God, God's just going to keep forgiving me over and Yes, that is what you must believe, that God is this gracious. Jesus' salvation is that big. Cry out for mercy. We're in our spring sermon series in the Old Testament in the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, here we are. Uh, we've left off with, you know, a couple, couple uh, chapters ago, we see Saul starting to fail. Last week, we saw his son Jonathan actually uh, be this amazing, amazing, incredible man of faith. And now we're back to Saul. So it's kind of like this sandwich where it's really showing you up how, just how, how far off Saul has gone. Uh, this first king, uh, the, the Israelites uh, are at this place where they, they want a king like the nations. And so God... You know, be careful what you ask for as the lesson gives them what they've been asking for. Gives them a king like the nations. That's Saul. And here we are really at the end of Saul's time uh, as, as God's king. Um, so please stand with the reading for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 15. It's a longer reading, but this is pretty, pretty wild stuff. Um, and we're going to be, uh, we'll, we'll be in 15 and then the very, very first verse of chapter 16. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. 
But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he's turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, do, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, the people took up the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie, uh, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made king Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the Bethlehem, you know, ite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Right, this passage, this is a hard, it raises all kinds of questions. So here's where we're going to start with this one. Like what, what is God doing? He tells Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, men, women, children, livestock, what is God doing? Bad, here are the bad answers. The bad answers for the destruction of the Amalekites and, and the Canaanites before them are, are things like these. Uh, things like this. Uh, these stories are fictional. Wrong. These stories are historical. Okay, this happened. Another bad answer. Uh, these stories are exaggerated. Uh, they weren't that bad. Erroneous. The, these stories are accurate and they're terrible. Another bad answer. The Amalekites and Canaanites were like Nazis committing atrocities, so it's just war. It's a just war to destroy them all. No. You don't kill non-combatants like women and children and livestock and justify it as just war. 
Uh, this is not, that's not what the Bible would call just war. And the Bible has legislation for things like just war. Uh, you, you find them in the first five books of the Bible. You find this stuff throughout the prophets of what just war looks like. And it's like, like no killing babies. You don't kill non-combatants. This is God's instructions to Israel when they conduct just war. You don't kill babies. You don't kill non-combatants. There's no brutality. You do not mutilate your enemies. And no scorched earth. Like, you, you can't destroy trees. No destruction of property. Because the point of just war is peace. That's the goal, is to secure peace. And you do not want to hamper post-war recovery. And no territorial expansion. That's not a part of Israel's MO. You don't, you don't get to do territorial expansion when you go out in just war. Okay, this is, not this is not what we would call just war. This war in 1 Samuel 15 is a war of judgment. Now, ever since, ever since the beginning of creation, we have been heading for judgment day. And, and just think of this, if Adam and Eve, if they had done what they were supposed to do, judgment day still would have come, but it would have been a glorious day for everybody. It would have been fantastic, super awesome. Everyone would have been glorified in heaven forever. But Adam and Eve don't do what they're supposed to do, and you have this thing called the fall, where our first parents sinned, disobeyed God. That judgment day now became a bad day, not a good day for all of us. Uh, something we're not looking forward to. Right after Satan, the serpent, deceives Adam and Eve in the garden, right there in Genesis 3, when God shows up, God should have come. He could have come in final judgment. And that could have been the end of mankind. And it could have been the end of the Bible, like right there. Like, we think, like, do you think judging, you think God judging Canaanites and Amalekites is abnormal? The weird thing is that there is anything after the fall. The fact that there's anything after the fall, that's abnormal. That mankind is allowed to go on. But there's this amazing thing that happens right after the fall. God shows up and he delays final judgment. God graciously allows the world to continue. He allows, the, he allows history to unfold so that he can save a people for himself. And here's what God does in this delay of, we're still headed for judgment day. We're still in this period of delay. And what God chooses to do, chooses to do at different points in this history is to intrude from heaven into earth, into time and space, into history with anticipations of final judgment. He comes with warnings. He comes with reminders to all the world of final judgment that is coming. Think of like the obvious ones, the flood with Noah. Like, that wasn't final judgment, but it was this gigantic picture of final judgment. Warning, Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues on Egypt with Moses, the conquest of the Canaanites by the Israelites, this destruction of the Amalekites. Those are examples of God's stark, real warnings of final judgment that's coming for everyone who has ever lived. I mean, Israel, Israel ended up rebelling and looking just like the surrounding nations. What does God do to them? He judges them. He brings the Assyrians. He brings the Babylonians. This war, right here in 1 Samuel 15, it is an instrument of God's, you could say, temporal judgment against a people he is no longer going to allow to live. And that raises the question, 
does God have the right to take life? He does it every day. God took 61 million lives last year. Uh, He also gave life. 134 million babies were born last year. But God takes life. God takes life. uh, He takes lives in every manner of ways. In every way we die, God takes life. Here he authorizes Israel, his theocracy on earth, to take the lives of the Amalekites. And it's not, this is not to defend life. This is not to defend property. This is to bring judgment. And this is, as God told Moses, much, much earlier than this, God has allowed the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Amalekites to do, he's allowed them to do horrible things for 400 years. All kinds of sexual immorality, all kinds of idolatry, as bad as child sacrifice. The Amalekites even attacked Israel just as Israel had been freed from slavery in Egypt. The Amalekites see these these wandering people, uh, these these newly freed slaves, and they attack them, and they go for the children. Uh, God has a right to punish sin and sinners. That's what God is doing here. But that's not all that God is doing here. Now, this may be a little less obvious thing that God is doing here, but it's just as confusing as what we just said. It says God is grieving over Saul. Like, God doesn't just judge the Amalekites. uh, He also judges and rejects his own king, Saul. It says this in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So he rejects him. But then, super confusing, I regret that I made him king, Verse 29, it says, and also the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man, that he should have regret. So what is God doing? Like, does he have regret or not? Yes. No. Like, what is God doing? God God grieves over Saul because Saul has changed. God has not changed. This is really important. Uh, One scholar who's explained what's happening here, he says it like this. He says, when the external world changes, God's relationship to that world also changes. So when Saul's behavior changed, God, who is unchangeable in his nature and purpose, whose mind does not change, when Saul's behavior changed, God chose to respond to Saul in a different way in order to be true to himself. He says, God changed his mind in order to not change his mind. Okay. Does God have emotions? Yes. The Bible tells us, like right here, God is grieved. It tells us he gets angry. He he rejoices. He pities. He is full of mercy. He is overflowing in love. But God's emotional life is not identical to ours. God does not get anxious. God God does not get stressed. God does not uh, get bitter. God is never overcome by emotion, like in the way that we are. God is not overcome with rage. God does not fall in love. He does not get frustrated. Emotions don't just happen to God. Uh, such that they don't ha- like emotions don't happen uh, just happen to God such that like he has to act in a certain way in order to make himself feel happier or change his mood from bad to good. So when someone tells you, 
hey, what I'm feeling is true for me. Okay, that's actually not true. Not necessarily. Like our emotions do not necessarily dictate reality. But God's emotions do. God's emotions are his evaluation of what is happening with his creation. So yes, God has real emotions, but they're always active, never passive. They're not forced upon him. They're not dictated by others. I know this is, I know this is, this is confusing. This is hard stuff. Have you, have you all ever heard of the concept uh, schadenfreude? Schadenfreude. It's a German word that literally means harm joy. It's the experience of pleasure or joy or self-satisfaction that comes from like hearing about or witnessing the troubles or the failures or the pain or the humiliation of another person. Y'all know Schadenfreude. Uh, this is, it's, it's the embarrassing feeling of joy you get when something bad happens to someone else who's not you. So like think fail videos. If y'all don't, Jerry videos, you can go look those up. Like, sci, this is what scientists have used MRIs to examine Schadenfreude among baseball fans that showed increased activation in brain area, areas correlated with self reported pleasure when observing the rival team experience a strikeout. You know that feeling. Like, the, they said the Schadenfreude of teams and their fan bases is off the charts when they beat the Astros. They didn't say that, but it's true. Um, okay, God doesn't do the schadenfreude. God grieving over Saul's rejection of him, God's grieving over his judging Saul means God derives no pleasure from our judgment. Samuel also derives no pleasure from Saul's rejection. God and his judge Samuel derive no pleasure from the rejection of their enemies. His judgment, that, that's, that's a good thing. Like His judgment is not clouded by ulterior motives. His judgment is simply and fully just. And I know that still leaves the question, like the why question, uh, why is God judging Saul in such a way you know, what, what did he really do? And we can answer that by answering this other question of, okay, that's what God is doing. What is Saul doing? Saul is deliberately disobeying God, and then he is deliberately denying that he is deliberately disobeying God when he knows he's deliberately doing all of this. When Samuel shows up to confront Saul and he delivers God's judgment against him, Saul approaches him. Like, there's Samuel. Saul doth protest too much. He's like, welcome. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Like, it's the first thing he says. And Samuel's immediate response is, what is the, okay, what's the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? I can barely hear you. And Saul's response back is, well, they spared them. Which just raises the question, and that's literally what it says. Sometimes it says, well, they, and then it puts in, like, the soldiers. It doesn't say that. It just says they. They. And, as in, and Samuel's like, who's they? They who? So I said, well, they, 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 them, they spared them, but get this, they spared them for the biggest worship service ever to your God, and you're going to give the sermon. And Samuel says, stop it. God made you king over his people, and you disobeyed him. He commanded you plainly, you're little king, he's big king, and you deliberately disobeyed your big king. He told you plainly, destroy all Amalekites. 
Leave no spoil, no plunder. You deliberately disobeyed his commandment. And the back and forth here is incredible. Saul immediately responds, shouting over the screaming of the sheep and the goats with the Amalekite king standing next to him says, I did exactly as the Lord commanded. We took no plunder uh, except the very best of the plunder. And we put everyone to death except, you know, king, Agag here. What? And you want Samuel to ask Saul, like right there, like, what is wrong with you? Which is really one of the big questions of life. One that, you know, we're, as you, you know, whatever news you're watching or whatever's going on, like you're asking that every day of like, what is wrong with them? And every now and then we'll ask of ourselves, like, what's wrong with me? That, that, that is one of those big life questions. What's wrong with us? How about this? How about this big one? Like, what causes genocide? And people would say, well, it's racism. Okay, but that doesn't answer the question of how are we capable of such hatred that would lead to genocide? There are places in the world, there are places in the world where, pe where uh, people will commit assassinations for less than a dollar. What's the cause of that? And people will say, well, it's poverty. Okay, but that doesn't answer the question of how is it that that's how we respond to poverty. There's a deeper answer that psychology, sociology cannot provide. But that deeper answer is one that no one wants to hear. It's one that none of us want to acknowledge. So we suppress it. We suppress the truth about ourselves because facing the truth about ourselves is too hard to handle, like picking up like a, a pot on, you know, hot pot on the stove. Like deep down, we know, but we can't face the truth, so we suppress. And to suppress something, you actually have to have the something, you know, to order uh, to suppress the thing. Like imagine you're in a pool and you've got one of those beach balls and you sit on it and then you hold your hands up to your friends. You're like, look, 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 no beach ball. Like where did it go? There's an, and yet, you know deep down there's a beach ball. Like you're just suppressing the truth. And the irony is, it's the truth that's keeping you afloat as you are intimately connected to it so that you can suppress it. Saul's problem is self-deception. Saul has deceived himself. That's what's wrong with him. At, 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 the, end of, uh, at the end of World War II, the first, or nearing the end of World War II, the, the first Nazi camp liberated by U.S. forces it was in the, the German town of Ordruf. And a week after the camp's liberation, the generals show up, uh, Eisenhower, Patton, Bradley, and they, they look around, they tour the site, and there are bodies everywhere, there's evidence of torture everywhere, and, and there are thousands of burned corpses, which just, you know, is a sign that, that there was this hurried cover-up of what was going on there. In, in one shed, they found a pile of 30 emaciated bodies uh, that, were, that had been sprinkled in lime. To, to try to uh, cover the smell. And, and General Patton, who's just used to all this terrible violence, he refused to go anywhere near it uh, because the sights and the smells, it just made him vomit. So the surviving prisoners from that camp, they tell their rescuers, I said, listen, the guards would go into town every night and drink and womanize and gloat over what they'd been doing here because then they would come back and tell us that. And so... Uh, so they, the prisoner said, so the people of the town must have known what was going on here. 
Uh, the U.S. forces, they go into the town, and they're asking the townspeople, and the townspeople said, we didn't know anything about it. We were told it was a work camp. And, and whether it was Eisenhower or it was Patton or it was a medical officer, it's, it's disputed, but one of the Allied officers said, okay, whether you knew or not, you, the townspeople, the German citizens of Ordruff, you're going to go and you're going to see this for yourself. You're going to see the atrocities that were committed by your countrymen, and then you're going to go and dig individual graves for each one of these bodies. And they go and they do this, and, and part of that crew, the mayor of Ordruff and his wife are included. They go and they, they spend the day digging these graves, and at the end of the next day, uh, the mayor and his wife, they go home and they hang themselves. And they leave a note behind that says, we didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. The same self-deception that enabled decent people to become complicit in a horrendous genocide is the same self-deception that's at work in Saul. And this is the scary thing. It's the same self-deception that gets to work in us. You know, what has Saul done? He's kept the loot. He has kept King Agag alive, all in direct disobedience to God. And he has built a monument to himself. You know, keeping the sheep and the livestock, that's about accruing wealth. You're not going to get rid of that stuff. That's incredible wealth. Keeping Agag alive, this is what ancient Near Eastern kings did when they conquered another kingdom. You keep the kings and you keep the officials alive, and then they become your servants. And you humiliate them to make the point, now you're not just a king, you're a king of kings. You're an emperor. Saul built a monument to himself because it is now himself that Saul really, really worships. We have an enormous capacity to hide the truths that are painful to us. One way Saul does it here is he does the blame game. He does blame shifting. You know, when Samuel brings up the bleeding sheep and the goats, he's, his response is, they, they, they did it. They, you know, they, the misdirection, the, they doesn't even have to be a real person. It's just they. It's not me. It's someone else. It's anybody else. The other mode of self-deception here is Saul deceives himself by hiding behind religion and morality. Yeah, I know, yeah, we left some of the best livestock alive, I know, but we did it in order to sacrifice to your God. We did it in order to worship. This is the, that's the stuff of, like, when we're confronted with our sin, we say, I know, but, like, look at my good deeds. Look at the good I do. You know, uh, yeah, I know two wrongs don't make a right, but this is the several rights atone for the wrong I continue to do. Look, I, I know I've done some bad stuff, but look at all the good I'm doing. Like, look what I'm doing for my family. Look what I'm doing for my friends. Look what I'm doing for my church. Look what I'm doing for, look at all the good I do. Self-deception, it not only enables us to do terrible things, living in self-deception could end up being the worst thing you ever do. Because what does God do here at the end? He rejects Saul for his disobedience and then he sends Samuel to anoint a new king. And this is David. But what we're going to see <laughs> is that God still desires a king who will obey in the fullest sense. And it won't be David. It'll be a king greater than David. As we get into David, we're going to see that David points to someone greater than him. In the New Testament, see, we, here we come back full circle, that call to worship. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, it takes up this language, this language right here from 1 Samuel 15, and it says this about Jesus, who is a descendant of David. 
It says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not, and he's talking to God, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And, by, and then this is, the common, this is the commentary on that. And by that will, we have been sanctified, that, by that will, by Jesus doing the will of God, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. That raises the question, wait, no, wait. If God prefers obedience to sacrifice, why does God accept Jesus' sacrifice for our disobedience? Is that justice? Yes. And amen. Because Jesus comes as the king of his people and he obeys the commandment given to him by his father in heaven to live for us and to die for us. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it was his last and his ultimate act of obedience. Because his sacrifice was not for his dis- disobedience, it was for ours. And this is why, this is why you hear Jesus, even before his death, saying in the Gospels, he says to the crowds, he says to his disciples, I desire, and what you expect to hear is, I desire obedience, not sacrifice. But that's not what he says. He says to the crowds, he says to his disciples, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's the question, what does God require of you? He requires that you admit you have not done what you're supposed to do. You have not obeyed the commandment of God. What is required of you and me is an admission we have not done what is required. What's missing from Saul is a request for mercy. This is David's confession after committing terrible sin. See if you hear a difference between Saul and David. Psalm 51, this is after terrible sin committed by David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my, trans- my transgressions. I have done what is evil in your sight. You are blameless in your judgment. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's the difference between Saul and David. This is why God will call David a man after his own heart because he cried out for mercy. Jesus does not want your sacrifice. He doesn't want you laying out your life. Look at all the good I've done. Look at everything I've given up. Surely you must accept me for that. He doesn't want want you looking at your sacrifice. He wants you looking at his and he wants you calling out for mercy. He requires mercy. Mercy, And until we understand we deserve judgment for our disobedience, we'll never enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom King Jesus came to bring. The problem is not, we're ending here, the problem is not God judged the Amalekites. The problem is God is coming to judge the world. David is no better than Saul, and we are no better than the Amalekites. On the cross, God showed us what our sin deserves. And if we're offended by God judging the sin of the Amalekites and the sin of Saul, we're going to be offended by the judgment Jesus received on the cross because that was our judgment. This is the awesomeness of the gospel. 
The gospel is that God intrudes into the history of mankind again before the final day, and he intrudes with judgment. But this time, it's not just a picture. This is not just a warning. Jesus' death on the cross is the first act of final judgment. At the cross, you and I experience final judgment through faith in Jesus as he bears our sin on the cross. And our hope is to stand with him, crying out for mercy, looking to him graciously, looking uh, to him with with patience uh, and, and crying out to mercy again and again as we call all peoples to join us to be saved through his judgment for us. Let's pray.